This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger. Today, Colson Whitehead. After writing two Pulitzer Prize-winning novels, The Underground Railroad and The Nickel Boys, he started writing crime novels set in Harlem. His new one, Crook Manifesto, is an entertaining read about crime at every level, from small-time crooks to revolutionaries, cops, politicians, and Harlem's elite. Also, we hear from crime writer S.A. Cosby. His new novel is about the first black sheriff in a southeast Virginia county, where the high school is named after Jefferson Davis, and there's a statue of a Confederate soldier outside the courthouse. The sheriff is trying to stop a serial killer who's been preying on black children while trying to control growing racial tensions as a group of white supremacists plan a local march. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger. Terry has our first interview. I'll let her introduce it. My guest, Colson Whitehead, won Pulitzer Prizes for two consecutive novels. The first Pulitzer was for The Underground Railroad, an allegory about race in America told through the stories of an escaped slave and a slave catcher. It was adapted into an Amazon series. The second Pulitzer was for The Nickel Boys, based on the true story of a segregated state reform school for boys, in which the boys were physically abused and dozens died a film adaptation starring Ingenue Ellis is in the works. After writing about those grim subjects, Whitehead started writing crime novels set in Harlem. These novels give him the chance to write snappy dialogue laced with witty observations while writing about class and race as well as crime and corruption at every level, from petty criminals to cops, city politicians, and Harlem's elite. Harlem Shuffle, the first novel in his projected Harlem trilogy, was set in the 60s. The new novel, Crook Manifesto, takes place from 1971 to 76. It brings back the main character, Ray Carney, the owner of a furniture store on 125th Street in Harlem, who takes pride in upgrading his customers' living rooms with comfortable, quality sofas and recliners. But it's the money he's earned from fencing stolen goods that's enabled him to move from a cramped apartment to the home he owns on Harlem's Drivers Row. Fencing got him deeper into crime than he was prepared for. In the opening of Crook Manifesto, he's been retired from crime for four years. But when his daughter insists that she needs tickets to the Jackson 5 concert, but they're sold out, he goes to the person he's confident can get him a pair, a corrupt white cop. By asking for a favor, Carney is forced to perform one in return, which leads him to become the unwitting accomplice to a murder. The novel's characters include a leader of the revolutionary group, the Black Liberation Army, the producer of a black exploitation film, and a groundbreaking comic who seems based on Richard Pryor. Sirens from police cars and fire trucks are the background noise throughout the book. Colson Whitehead, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's so great to have you back again. And I'm so glad you wrote a sequel <laughs> to Harlem Shuffle because it's really such an enjoyable series. Um, so I want to start by asking you to read a section from the first chapter of the book. Just to set it up, why don't you explain the scene, set the scene for us. Sure, it's the opening of the book, 1971, and uh, Ray Carney, our furniture store owner slash uh, part-time fence, 
is having a normal day of business, which means there's a lot of noise and uh, crazy activity outside on the, on 125th Street in Harlem. He has a sales assistant named Larry, who is trying to reel in a customer named uh, Mr. Foster. Another siren. Business, orderly business, unfolded inside the walls of Carney's furniture, but out on the street it was Harlem rules. Rowdy, unpredictable, more trifling than a loser uncle. The sirens zipped up and down the abs as regularly as subway trains all hours per Calamity's timetable, if not the cops on the mayhem mission, then an ambulance racing to unwind fate, a fire engine speeding to a vacant tenement before the blaze ate the whole block, or en route to a six-story building kerosene for the insurance, a dozen families inside. Carney's father had torched a building or two in his day. It paid the rent. This was a radio car siren, Carney joined Larry and Charlie Foster at the window. On the other side of 125th, two white officers hassled a young man in a dark denim jacket and red flare trousers, their vehicle beached on the sidewalk. The cops pushed him up against the window of Hutchins Tobacco, known for its cigarettes without tax stamps and for its vermin problem. The 125th Street foot traffic bent around this obstruction in the stream. Most did not stop. Nothing special about a roust. If not here, somewhere else. But the manhunt had people edgy and off their routines. They lingered and muttered to one another, sassing and heckling the policemen, even as they remained at a distance that testified to their fear. The taller cop swept the man's feet apart and patted the inside of his legs. What'd he do, Carney said. They pulled up, tackled him like he robbed a bank, Larry said. Acting crazy, Charlie Foster said, looking for those Black Panthers. Black Liberation Army, Larry said. Same thing. Carney didn't want to interrupt when there was a fish on the line, but the disagreement between the Panthers and the offshoot Black Liberation Army was about more than names. The philosophical dispute encompassed the temperament of the street, law enforcement's current posture vis-a-vis -vis Harlem, and all the sirens. Step back and maybe it contained everything. That's Colson Whitehead reading from his new novel, Crook Manifesto. Um, it's interesting that you get in, like, the Panthers versus the Black Liberation Army, like, by page nine. <laughs> and the impression I, I get, you know, from that passage is that the Panthers and the BLA, they're making headlines, but to the people in Harlem and the people who work at Ray Carney's store and to Ray Carney himself, it's confusing what the difference is, and their revolutionary politics isn't meaning very much to the people in Ray's world. Yeah, I mean, it's 1970, 1971, and there's this rift in the Black Panther Party. How do we actually get things done? Um, can we work within the American system, or do we want revolution? And so um, the Black Liberation Army has splintered off. Uh, they're robbing banks, allegedly. They're taking credit for shooting at um, policemen. And there's a, a manhunt um, sort of disturbing the, the rhythm of people's lives. What's going on? Why are all these policemen sort of cruising around our neighborhood even more than usual? And it's, it's in this moment of rupture that I pick up Carney's story a couple years after the first book, Harlem Shuffle, and he has to navigate this mess. Why did you want to pick it up there? I had a system where the first book would be about the 60s and the second about the 70s. And um, I'm trying to, to find moments that of opportunity you know, for storytelling um, that speak to Carney's dilemma in this world. Um, what's next for him? Which way is he going to jump? The same way the Panthers are at this moment of inflection. Um, where's the city going? Crime is at an all-time high. We're looking down at a fiscal crisis that's coming down the pike. So New York is in this, in this place of, of change as well. And so I picked 1971, 1973, and 1976 because each offers a different sort of opportunity to drop Carney and his uh, supporting cast in a different place. The Black Liberation Army in your novel is in with some corrupt cops in terms of expropriating <laughs> money from businesses and banks. Um, 
So were they together in the real world, the members of the Black Liberation Party and corrupt cops who who were willing to steal money uh, or get payoffs in order to do what they wanted to do? Well, they're incredibly corrupt cops in New York uh, in 1971. It's the year of the Knapp Commission, a uh, big police corruption investigation that people might have heard of through Serpico. Is there a documented link between um, uh, police in real life and the Black Liberation Army? I invented it. Um, I think at different points in, in, in the lives of different cities like New York and Los Angeles, you do get that sort of more direct collusion. The crime in this book, um, that Detective Munson, the sort of white corrupt cop, is engaged in is, is invented, as far as I know. Do you feel like you're smearing the BLA by doing that? <laughs> I think, uh, I think um, you know... Uh, they're, they're sort of cagey about what they were up to in the early 70s, um, even still, even after they've, you know, some of them have fled to Cuba or, or served their uh, prison sentences. Um, so I'll let, their, I'll let them sort of speak for themselves. You were born in 1969. The book begins in 1970, and it ends in 1976. So, like, you're seven, maybe, by the time the book ends. What are some of the things you actually remember going on in the background when you were that young that you put in the book and things that you just missed out on that you wanted to know more about that you put in the book? Yeah, I'm, I'm barely in the book. Um, you know, my early 70s New York is dingy and grimy. And um, so I mostly remember the, the streets and the kind of desperation, you know, crimes uh, at this uh, fever pitch. And you never knew what was going to happen when you walked out the door. So I think that I definitely absorbed that sense of paranoia and, and fear. We're listening to Terry's interview with Colson Whitehead. His new novel is Crook Manifesto. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. We Were the Lucky Ones is the true story of one Jewish family's struggle to survive and reunite after being separated at the start of World War II. The series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Limited Series and Outstanding Lead Actress and Actor in a Limited Series for Joey King and Logan Lerman. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Let's get back to my interview with Colson Whitehead. He won Pulitzer Prizes for his novels The Underground Railroad and The Nickel Boys. His new book, Crook Manifesto, is a crime novel set in Harlem in the 70s. It's a sequel to his novel Harlem Shuffle, which was set in the 60s. Their main character, Ray Carney, is a furniture store owner in Harlem who also fences stolen jewels and more and keeps getting deeper into crime. Since the Panthers and the Black Liberation Army figure into your novel, what was your introduction to them? Yeah, I mean, I think probably in in a very cheesy way, like on bad TV shows like Good Times or uh, The White Shadow. I think, you know, I was coming of age in the late 70s and consuming TV and movies. And that was like, you know, plenty of time for... The revolutionary fervor, uh, black national thought, the late '60s, early '70s, to trickle into you know pop culture. So it's um, somebody on a sitcom and their daishiki-clad uncle who's very militant and and walking into this very sort of bourgeois household. Um, so it's it's through pop culture, and obviously 
the history of the Black Panther Party was not being taught in my high school. I think I assume most high schools. And now it's, you know, I think illegal to teach black history in, in certain uh, states and cities. Uh, so it wasn't until college I, you know, got sort of more grounding on some of the real arguments and, and what different aspects of the civil rights movement actually meant and what they did. Was your family involved in any aspect of the civil rights or post-civil rights era? Yeah, uh, I love you know hearing the story about my mom and dad going to the March on Washington. Um, they weren't activists. They were people trying to raise a family in an incredibly racist country and finding their own their own way of changing things, changing the status quo, which was, you know, I think family and their, and their business. So growing up seeing um, the Panthers as described in sitcoms or The White Shadow, did you not take them seriously or did they seem foolish because of their portrayal on sitcoms? Is that, was that your first impression? Well, no, I think there's, there's this, you know, they were, they were holy. The rift that I describe in Harlem Shuffle between people who are more revolutionary-oriented versus reformist was not part of, you know, that, those sort of pop cultural depictions. But in the way that my parents would talk about that time, my friend's parents, it was very serious. It was deadly serious. No matter what you thought they ended up achieving uh, or what their legacy was in 1982, 1984, 1985, um, they were, you know, these holy warriors. You've said in an interview that you retreated into pop culture in part to escape your father's alcohol-fueled rages. Can you talk about that a little bit? Is that too personal? It is a it is, it is a bit personal, but I, I think, uh, you know, being able to close my door and retreat into these imaginary worlds, whether it was, you know, whether I was seven years old or eight years old, and um, thinking about what the war against the empire would be like, you know, if I was in it, or Star Trek, or uh, Spider-Man, or even trying to outrun uh, zombies and Night Living Dead. You know, I think the imaginary worlds of all these different writers I adored provided um, escape, you know, the same way that, you know, people have always, you know, found release and escape and... Um, and nurturing in, uh, in, in storytelling and in fantasy. One of your novels, Sag Harbor, is inspired by the summers you spent in Sag Harbor. Can you describe Sag Harbor and its significance in your life? Uh, Sag Harbor is a town on the east end of Long Island, um, uh, sort of better known as the Hamptons. And there's a, a town in that Hamptons constellation called Sag Harbor. It's an old whaling town. And there's a a long-standing black and Native American neighborhood, uh, about a, you know three quarters of a mile outside town, and black folks from New Jersey and New York started vacationing there in the 30s and 40s, and this little community sprouted it up uh, by word of mouth. And um, my family started going there in the 40s. Um, I spent all my summers there until I went to college, and it was this um, neat little. Uh, community nestled in this improbable place. And there are other places like it. And, you know, I hear people talk about how it reminded them of their childhood in, in Michigan, another sort of black town, uh, black beach community, uh, or in Baltimore. And I wanted to, I had to sort of shake up my writing career. I had to find a new way of, of telling stories. And so I, I picked this really autobiographical story uh, to tell about growing up in the 1980s. And, um, you know, it changed how I approach characters and writing. And so it's not only a place that sort of formed my identity in many different ways, but also, you know, who I am as a writer in the last 15 years. In, in the novel, the main character has a brother who's, I don't know, like 10 months apart in age, something like that. And so it's as if they were twins when they're very young and, the, and they go their separate ways. Did you have a sibling who was that close in age to you? Yeah, my, my brother, uh, um, who passed away a couple of years ago. I'm sorry um, to hear that. Was, uh, we were 10 months apart, and everyone thought that, that we were twins because we uh, were a little unit, sort of inseparable. And um, 
you know, part of the book is capturing the, the beauty of that twinhood. And then also the separation that happened when we became teenagers and we had to sort of, you know, find our different paths in high school and in the world. So I'm writing about that time, but also a time in my life uh, that was, you know, very, very formative. Did you like having somebody, uh, like having a brother who was so close in age to you that people thought you were twins? Um, you know, now it's, you know, we sort of, we broke up in, uh, in, in high school. Um, but it was very, you know, it was a very, very special thing. You know, we did everything together, um, whether it was, you know, reading Fangoria magazine and reading out part of John Carpenter's interview about Escape from New York and The Fog or in Halloween, his movie Halloween, or renting uh, David Cronenberg movies uh, by The Armful uh, from Crazy Eddie's, which was an electronic store in the uh, in New York City. Um, so, yes, I mean, it, it was, you know, I hope I, I got, I did some justice in, in getting him in, into the book and, and telling our story. Was your breakup acrimonious? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, you know, in high school, I think um, the burden of being a, a semi-respectable teen teenager was uh, a bit much for us. You know, I think we all had to, we each had to find our, our own different way of being out in the world. So, um, no, you know, we were close, but never as close as, as we were before the high-stakes game of puberty started. Did your brother's death make you think about your own mortality? Um, my brother, you know, was in a sort of bad health for, for many years, um, and definitely in The Nickel Boys and in Harlem Shuffle, I was trying to figure out that relationship. Um, both those novels have, you know, Black men who are are very close and go in different directions. One person makes it out. One person uh, does not make it out. One person finds their way in the world, and, and one and the other doesn't. And so, even though those books don't necessarily seem to have a very sort of autobiographical element, in those two core relationships, you know, I was definitely trying to figure out uh, figure out me, figure out my brother, and how we ended up splitting apart after being twins. So, well, we've been talking about the 70s. Has your head really been in the 80s because you're working on that new novel now? I'm trying to figure out uh, what of the 80s will work for Carney and his gang. So uh, New York has come out of the fiscal crisis. Uh, Wall Street's booming again. And we're getting that, you know, uh, boom and bust action in terms of the city's fortune and Carney's fortune. They're mirroring each other. So what do I use from the glitzy 80s? You know, Donald Trump, no. You know, I'm not going to be foul my book with uh, mm. Donald Trump. So... Um, he's not going to read it. If he's not in it, you know, he's not going to read it. You've just lost one reader. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so is New York in 1981, fruitful territory, 1984, 1986, 87. New York does, you know, find its footing uh, financially. And then in the late 80s, the, the AIDS crisis, the crack epidemic is sort of waiting to spoil the party again. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's definitely the city I know. Um, it's uh, going through a bad period, uh, being laid low, and then trying to figure out how to come come back from it. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out what moments in 80s New York will serve the story and also are interesting to me. I, you know, sort of found my identity in alternative music, college radio, uh, as we used to call it. Uh, Carney's probably not hanging out at CBGB's. He's probably not um, doing the things I used to do. So I have to figure out what a 50-something Carney is going to seek out um, and interact with. Just one more thing. Um, I, I know that you've said that when you walk around outside, you often have like an expressionless face or you look sad because you're thinking. And I think people ask you, like, what's wrong? Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that always used to happen to me when I was growing up. Like people would come up and say, oh, oh, honey, what's wrong? Are you lost? What's your reaction when people do that to you? Do they still? Um. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, I was thinking about death or something. 
<laughs> I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> I'll remember that the next time if somebody does that to me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Colson, thank you so much. Sure, sure. Take care. Thanks a lot. Colson Whitehead's new novel is Crook Manifesto. He spoke with Terry Gross. In the novel All the Sinners Bleed by our next guest, S.A. Cosby, Sheriff Titus Crown is tracking down a serial killer, terrorizing his jurisdiction, Charon County, a fictional county in southeast Virginia. The killer's victims are black children. As he investigates, Titus unravels the racial and religious animus behind the killings. Titus had left Charon County to go to college and to work with the FBI investigating domestic terrorism. But after that career abruptly ended, he reluctantly returned to live with his aging father. Titus was elected the first black sheriff of Charon, a remarkable achievement considering the prevalence of Confederate flags in the area, the high school named after Jefferson Davis, and a statue honoring the Confederate cause outside the courthouse. Titus has to figure out a way to keep the county safe from the serial killer and also keep simmering racial tensions from getting out of hand, especially as a white supremacist group is planning to march in support of what it calls, quote, Southern heritage. S.A. Cosby has written several crime novels, including the bestseller Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland. Razorblade Tears appeared on many best of the year lists in 2021. Cosby, whose first name is Sean, grew up in Matthews County, a place very much like the fictional Charon County, and now lives nearby. Well, Sean Cosby, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start um, with the prologue to your book, if you could do a reading for us. And this sort of sets up what Charon County is like and, and some of its history. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Charon County. Charon County was founded in bloodshed and darkness. Literally and figuratively. Even the name is enveloped in shadows and morbidity. Legend has it that the name of the county was supposed to be Charlotte or Charles. But the town elders waited too late. and Those names were already taken by the time they decided to incorporate their fledgling encampment. As the story goes, they just moved their finger down the list of names until they settled on Charon. Those men, weathered as wit leather, with hands like splitting malls, bestow the name on their new town with no regard to its macabre nature. Or perhaps they just liked the name because a river flowed through the county and emptied into the Chesapeake like the river sticks. Who knows? Who could know the thoughts of those long dead men? What is known is that in 1805, in the dead of night, a group of white landowners, chafing at the limits of their own manifest destiny, set fire to the last remaining indigenous village on the teardrop-shaped peninsula that would become Charon County. Those who escaped the flames were brought down by muskets with no regard to age, gender, or infirmity. That was the first of many tragedies in the history of Charon. There was the cannibalism of the winter of 1853, the malaria outbreak of 1901, the United Daughter of the Confederacy picnic poisoning of 1935, the Danforth family murder-suicide of 1957, the tent revival baptismal drownings of 1968, and on and on and on. The soil of Charon County, like most towns and counties in the South, was sown with a generation of tears. That's S.A. Cosby reading from his new book, All the Sinners Bleed. So, Sean, I really thought that was interesting, the sort of idea that the county is founded in bloodshed and darkness, and that somehow um, that history has haunted the place or tainted it. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm I, so I'm a Southerner born and bred. I was raised in Virginia. I was born in Matthews County. Um, I've lived my whole life, you know, 30 miles from the former uh, capital of the Confederacy. If there's a place that is more haunted by its past and more, um, and more uh, overwhelmed by its original sin than the South. I'm not aware of it. Um, the South is, a, in many ways, it's the birthplace of the country, um, but it's also a microcosm for what's wrong with the nation. And so I'm a big proponent of the idea that maybe the South isn't, you know, supernaturally haunted, but it is definitely haunted by the pain and the bloodshed and the violence that existed here. Do you sort of see that haunting where whenever you're walking around or driving around where you live? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can definitely feel it. You can feel it, you know, for years, our local um, elementary school 
was uh, Lee Jackson School, named after Robert E. Lee and, and Stonewall Jackson. Um, and, you know, one, I went to school. One name there. wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah, one, one Confederate statue, one Confederate soldier wasn't enough. We had to really hammer home the point of what we're trying to say here. And so, you know, as a kid, I went to school there. Uh, I was taught that the Civil War was a war of Northern aggression. Um, I was taught that the Civil War wasn't technically, if you squint, about slavery, um, and so those are things that are still being taught to a different, to a certain extent, in my hometown today. I think, you know, um, somebody said to me one time that the difference between the South and post World War II Germany is that Germans are ashamed of their history, and uh, Southerners aren't ready to accept it. And I think that's a, I think that has a lot of validity. We'll get to some of that a little bit later, um, but first, you know, I read that you originally set out to write a book about police brutality, but then you shifted and you're, the hero of this book is actually a sheriff. Um, what brought about that evolution? So in, this book was really inspired by the murder of George Floyd and all the events of that summer. And I really wanted to take a book and talk about policing, but use it in, like I said before, the microcosm of a small town and sort of ref- use that small town police force to reflect the issues and, and concerns about policing on a larger scale. And what I realized rather quickly is that I did not have enough wherewithal to write about that in a really truly unbiased fashion. Uh, I'm too personally involved in it. I've been pulled over for driving while black before. I've had my face shoved in the, in the asphalt for no reason just because I was driving a nice car. And so um, there was a lot of emotion there that I wasn't able to pull back from. Um, and when you write like that, I think you end up sermonizing. And nobody wants a 300-page sermon. You know, you want a good story. And so I, I set the book aside for a while, and uh, I didn't think about it. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was a former minister. Um, he's no longer practicing. And uh, he said something that really struck me. He said, you know, the thing that bothered me the most is when I was a minister, I didn't feel like I actually was helping the least of us, the people who needed my help the most. And that sort of sparked this idea in me about a character who's trying to do that. Um, I didn't want to write about it from the point of view of a, of a minister just because I felt like uh, writing about the police and writing about a sheriff, I could sort of accomplish on a smaller scale the things I had originally set out to do. So I can talk about policing, but I also... I can talk about religion. I can talk about sex. I can talk about class. You know, those are, in my opinion, the four pillars of Southern fiction because Southern fiction is so intrinsically tied up with those issues, with religion, with sex, with class. Um, you know, and, and those things are in, intrinsic in the work of Faulkner or, or Flannery O'Connor or Harry Cruz or Carson McCullers or Ernest J. Gaines. You see all that all the time. And it's always in flux in their books. And so I, I decided I was going to try to write a book like that. If you're just joining us, my guest is novelist S.A. Cosby, whose newest crime novel is called All the Sinners Bleed. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Let's get back to my interview with writer S.A. Cosby. His newest novel is called All the Sinners Bleed. The action takes place in a fictional county in southeast Virginia called Sharon County, which is a lot like the county Cosby grew up in, Matthews, where the high school was named after Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and where a statue in front of the courthouse honors the Confederate cause. His novel's hero is Titus Crown, Sharon County's first black sheriff. Um, 
So as I mentioned earlier, Sean, in your book, there's a statue commemorating the Confederate cause. It stands in front of the courthouse. It's it's actually not even like a real person. It's just called Old Rebel Joe. Um, and in the book, you write about like how this statue and others like it were erected in the South by this group, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. I was hoping you could read that passage for us about the history of these statues. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Titus pulled out of the parking lot and slipped onto the road. Night had come and covered the sky above Charon County like a black blanket full of pinpricks. He turned right and drove past the courthouse building. Ricky Sowers and his neo-Confederates had installed solar lights around the statue of old Rebel Joe. Titus thought the lights looked cheap and disposable, much like the statue itself. It had been erected in 1923 by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, a part of a coordinated and extensive propaganda campaign to reframe traitors as patriots. After World War I, thousands of black veterans had returned home after saving democracy from the Kaiser with a renewed sense of dignity. They were heroes, after all. Why should they have to bow and scrape to anybody? Then the Red Summer happened, and white men, like Everett Cunningham, Scott's great-grandfather, made it their mission to remind these heroes of their place. So, Sean, did you know about that history before uh, researching for the book, or did you come across it then? Um, yes and no. Uh, my grandfather, uh, actually my great-grandfather was a, a World One vet, um, so I knew a little bit about the Red Summer. Um, as far as the Confederate statues, I had a little bit of that history, but um, I had found it uh, much later in researching another book, and I was just fascinated by the uh, the idea that some – you know, 20, 30 odd years after the Civil War and uh, after the, uh, you know, the history of the country was adjudicated, these folks uh, took it upon themselves to reframe the Civil War. And I think that's a, you know, I think that's a horrible, horrible thing that we're still dealing with today, that we are not able to accept the truth of our history, not just the Civil War, but of, you know, America's history in total. You know, the idea of America is this incredible wonderful experiment in freedom and autonomy but the way we got there is filled and littered with you know darkness and degradation and i think we do ourselves a disservice if we're not honest about it you know um it's funny I, i'll hear a lot of people say you know we can't take these these statues down and these people were just people of their time and you know they were fighting for what they thought was right you know and i'm like yeah and i'm sure nazis thought they were right too that doesn't make it correct um, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'll hear people sometimes, especially nowadays, you people say, oh, you're trying to make, you know, young white children feel guilty about what their ancestors did. Well, if they don't share those same sentiments, why would they feel guilty? You know, it, it's it's that 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 maddening, you know, uh, fallacy of logic that drives me crazy sometimes. Yeah. Knowing that the history of these statues, that they were part of this like propaganda campaign after World War One, like really to subjugate black people. Like what does that do to the arguments that some make about how honoring the Confederacy or even displaying the Confederate flag is just a way to celebrate Southern heritage, that it's not tethered to the history of slavery or white supremacy? I think that's an incredibly naive, if not outright disingenuous attitude. You you can't separate those two. Um, you know, I, I am a Southerner. Uh, my my Southern bona fides go back to 1867. My great 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 grandfather, uh, Gabriel Cosby, and his brother Kit Cosby founded the church that I attended for a number of years. Um, when you wave that Confederate flag and tell people that that's Southern heritage, what you're doing is erasing all the indigenous people that live in the South, all the black people that live in the South, the the uh, huge amount of uh, uh, Jewish Southerners that live in the South. And what you're saying is that only one demographic's interpretation of history matters. And, you know, I am a proud Southerner. I have no intention of leaving. And every scrap of land or every pole that some good old boy erects to put a confederate flag on someone who looks like me has bled and died and lived there and i have as much right to southern heritage as anyone else and so i i don't plan on seating one inch one foot one iota to someone who has this sort of reimagined revisionist uh idea of what the civil war was um there's a similar statue in matthews county where you grew up is is that still there or has that been taken down no, it's still there. Um, we had a, 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 a there was a referendum on the on the uh, election uh, board a few years ago to take it down, and the folks who were in favor of it staying up 
were successful in wording the referendum in such a confusing way. I think people didn't realize what exactly they were voting for, um, you know, and they, they messaged it as, oh, they're trying to take away our history and, and all that. And, I, I you know, again, that's just that's frustrating. I mean, history is – you can have history in museums. doesn't mean you forgot it. Those statues are not up for historical reasons. Those statues are reminders that the people who fought a, a whole war to keep people in chains do not accept their loss. And I think that's something that, again, has really – um, worn us down as a people, as a nation, that we we did not take action to make the people who were literal traitors be treated like traitors. We we let the, you know, I think it's the first time in the history of the world that the losers of a civil conflict were able to dictate the terms of how they remembered. And so uh, I find that frustrating, not only as a Southerner, but as an African-American. You know, the one in, in Matthews, the, the statue of Matthews is built directly in front of what used to be the courthouse building. And that's a very clear message that, you know, if you come here for redress of grievances, you'll find yourself wanting because this is what we think of you. And so, um, you know, it's funny in my hometown, I had a, a gentleman that I knew, a white gentleman who was like, you know, I don't know why y'all are getting all upset about that statue. Now. I never heard about it when I was a kid. And I wanted to turn them like when you were a kid, people were being lynched. You know, you're 68. When you were a child, Speaking out against the statue could get you shot in the face. And so um, I, I, I definitely write about that, you know, uh, in my work, not just all the centers, but all my work. I talk about race. I talk about the the way that we are um, slowly but surely trying to understand what it means to be Southern in the 21st century. Um, you know, and uh, I find that. You know, I love the South. I really do. I love where I come from. I love the place that I live. But to paraphrase James Baldwin, because I love the South, I reserve the right to criticize it because I know it can be better than what it is. So later in the book, there's this white supremacist group led by like this wonderfully named character, Ricky Sowers. Um, and he, <laughs> they, they hold a march to protect the statue, even though it doesn't seem like there's a plan to remove it. And Titus your hero actually has to protect their right to march and they're marching in Confederate uniforms. And you write like what he thinks when he looks at them. That you say, he felt an atavistic revulsion roll through his body. The sight of these men, men who thought their lack of complete success in their every endeavor was proof of the falsity of their privilege and their dress grays made him sick. And I, I really think that description... Um, Men who thought their lack of complete success in their every endeavor was proof of the falsity of their privilege is really interesting. I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, so I've had debates with people I considered friends or people I knew or people I grew up with that this idea of white privilege doesn't exist. You know, there's no such thing. It's like I, I had a gentleman tell me, I'm working every day. You know, I, I'm, I'm paying bills. How is that? Where's my privilege? Where's my free car? And privilege is not free things. I think people confuse privilege with success. You know, just because you're not successful doesn't mean that you're not privileged. It's like you can be in a foot race and your your mom can be the one judging the foot race and your your brother can give you a 10 foot head start. And if you lose, that doesn't mean that you didn't have any privileges, you know, just mean you weren't able to take advantage of them. Um, and so I think there's this idea among some folks that, you know, their lack of success is it's a proof that the privilege doesn't exist. No, your privilege is to drive down the road without getting pulled over for nothing. You know, your privilege is to go into a, a store and have a $20 bill that looks a little janky and the person just not accepting it. You don't end up with somebody's knee on your neck. You know, that's your privilege. Your privilege is to have an uncle, have a cousin, have a friend, have a fraternity brother who works at a bank, who gets you a good mortgage when you come in, even though maybe your credit isn't 100%. That's your privilege. Now, if you lose the house later on, that again, it's not emblematic of not having that privilege. And so I definitely am aware of that. It's something that I've seen growing up, uh, you know, as a, as a kid in the South. Um, when I was uh, when I was 13, I won a, uh, a chess contest at our school. We had like a chess tournament. And there was a kid, I'm not going to name him, obviously, but there was a kid who didn't play chess, who didn't like chess. But he was mad that I had won. And um, I was on the school bus with him, and he— uh, poured some liquid on me and we got into a fight you know as kids do and um you know when this when the principal asked him why did he do it he was just mad that i won the contest he was tired of people talking about how smart i was and all that kind of stuff and i remember turning to him and I'm like, but you don't like chess and I, at the time as a child i couldn't wrap my mind around that you know and as an adult i realized that this particular young man was in a household where anything that wasn't whiteness centered 
was taken as an insult, was taken as a slight. That itself is a privilege to believe that, to feel that. Um, you know, uh, I've never been ashamed of being black. I've never been ashamed of being a black man. But I'm acutely aware that my life has never been easier because of my, the color of my skin. Um, just like I have friends who are white who's I, I doubt that their lives have ever been harder because of the color of their skin. And again, I don't want you to feel bad about that. I don't want you to, you know, genuflect and grovel about that. I just want you to acknowledge it. I think acknowledging it goes a long way to help healing um, some of our issues. So you grew up in Southeast Virginia in Matthews County, a place uh, that sounds very similar to to the Charon County of your book. <laughs> um, could you tell us about where you grew up, your family, your home? Yeah. Oh, man. So Matthews County. It is Charon. I'll just be honest with you. I just, <laughs> I just, I just changed the name so nobody gets mad at me. Um, but no, I love Matthews County. Matthews County is the smallest county in Virginia. Population hovers around 8,000 people. And I know all of them. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> which made uh, which made dating difficult in high school because you related to everybody. It's like, oh, I met this girl. She's your cousin. Oh, okay. <laughs> Never mind. Um, so we had to go next door to Gloucester to date. Um, but it's a beautiful beautiful place to live is right on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, you know, there are farms there. There's, uh, the sea is a huge part of our lives. My dad was a waterman or a, a commercial fisherman when I was a kid. Um, my grandmother worked at the, uh, seafood plant where they, uh, picked crab meat and, and uh, uh, shelled, uh, oysters and, and scallops. Um, you know, my grandfather, uh, like I said, he was an elder in our church. Um, he was a, a man that I looked up to a lot. Um, Sunday evenings, uh, people come after church to my grandma's house, and they would just sort of casually gather there. And my grandmother would go get some hamburger meat, or she'd have some venison steaks, and somebody would cook, and then invariably somebody would find a, a jug of moonshine or a jar and pass that around. And I grew up around these really interesting um, backyard orators and these uh, really interesting uh, uh uh, you know, barbecue raconteurs. Um, my uncles and my aunts told, uh, you know, just this history of oral storytelling that I grew up around that I really love, you know, and uh, my uncles would tell stories and my aunts would always be like, <laughs> always say, that's a lie. And my uncle uh, Edward would say, you know, well, if it ain't true, it ought to be. And so, um, <laughs> and so just this joy of telling stories, of telling jokes. So what were the books that um, your mom or other people in your family read? Um, I grew up in a household where people read a lot. My mom read uh, biographies and historical novels, and she read Greek mythology. And she used to make my brother and I, uh, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but whenever we did get some extra money, um, she wouldn't just give it to us in his allowance. She would make us solve riddles. Hmm. And I remember my brother was like 15. He was like, I'm getting a job. <laughs> <'Cause> I, <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> it's too much, too much mental acuity going on here. Um, but my mom read those books. My grandmother was huge romance novel fan. So I read all these Harlequin romances. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Learned to uh, look up words that I didn't understand. So, you know, you go right to the dictionary. Like, what does two mess it mean? And like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, um, and so, and then my, uh, my aunt, and my uncle, respectively, read horror novels and detective novels. Yeah. My aunt read, my aunt gave me my first Stephen King novel, my first Clyde Barker novel. Um, and my uncle was gave me all of his uh, John D. McDonald, uh, Travis McGee novels. Uh-huh. Uh, so the Deep Blue Something, and, and I love those stories. And uh, I remember my aunt, when she gave me my first Stephen King novel, Salem's Lot, I was 13. And uh, she said, uh, she said, hey, you know, you'll be able to handle this? I'm like, yeah, I'll be fine. She said, I don't want your mom to get mad at me. I was like, all right. And I read the book. And then for the next two weeks, I slept with this popsicle crucifix <laughs> that I made <laughs> under my pillow because I was so afraid Ralphie Glick was coming to my window. So, Shauna, you said something just a second ago about how in Matthews County, there's 8,000 people. You know all of them. And that's kind of that's kind of what it seems like in, in your book, um, that everyone knows each other. Many people are each in each other's business. Um, and also, like, you even know, like, who all the white supremacists are. And, like, everyone drinks at this one bar, like, <laughs> like all the white people, all the black people. And, you know, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of bar fights there. Was Is mm-hmm. that what it is like living there? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it is. It, I think it's because uh, I think the South, you're, in many ways, the South was forced to acknowledge their, their uh, horrible past and segregation. And so in doing so, we are uh, more accustomed to being around each other, I think, in a way that if you go to – you know, the, the, a certain neighborhood in New York, for instance, um, you don't have that sort of forced 
reclamation. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's good that we were forced to do that because I think it, you know, it helps move things along as as well as things can be moving along. Uh, But yeah, uh, there's a bar here. Uh, I won't name them, but there's a local bar here that everybody ends up at. And, and, you know, as people are wont to do when they had a little bit too much of the uh, libations, um, they, uh, they have a tendency to uh, adjudicate disagreements with their fists. And uh, I used to be a bouncer there, so I saw a lot of that. Yeah, yeah I think you've actually admitted to getting a, a few of those fights yourself. <laughs> I am uh, I am currently 3-0, and so. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were a bouncer, did you have like a move that you like get someone out or of the bar or like to neutralize someone that you would have to use? I always found, and it sounds hilarious, I always found a good especially if you're taller than someone mm. a good wedgie was good to get him out of the bar <laughs> just grab him by their underpants and pull those up as high as you can because it disarms them and they they honestly don't know how to react and by the time they realize what they want to do you've gotten them outside uh so that was my go-to move i didn't like <laughs> i uh, i didn't want to get into a slug fest with you i just wanted to remove you from the situation as fast as yeah. possible so. yeah. yeah they probably are never expecting that and not at all <laughs> Well, Sean Cosby, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. S.A. Cosby's new crime novel is called All the Sinners Bleed. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shurrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yacundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Sam Brigger. This message comes from NPR sponsor Betterment. The emotional build of a will-they-won't-they love story is never chill, but your investing portfolio should be. Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. Their automated technology and tax smart tools are easy to set up, so you can focus on navigating any will-they-won't-they-love stories that come your way. Betterment. Be invested and totally chill. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at stearnsandfoster.com. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.